Mark Prater, who is the executive director of the family of churches that we're a part of called Sovereign Grace Churches, is here to bring the word of God to us this morning from Romans chapter 8. The title of the message this morning is God is for us. And so I'm really looking forward to you all being encouraged with the precious truths from Romans 8 and the truth that God is for us as believers. And so I want you to really listen carefully and, and benefit from uh, the truth of God's words that's being taught. I've known Mark for many years, um, all the way back to really my college years at Westchester. Back when I was going to Westchester, um, our, our local church, um, our sister church, Covenant Fellowship, sent an evangelism team to uh, our, our sister church in Pittsburgh, which was a brand new church plant at the time. And Mark Prater had planted the new church in Pittsburgh. And so I got to know Mark and his family really well on that uh, short-term mission trip to Pittsburgh. We did a number of evangelistic outreaches that week into the neighborhoods around Pittsburgh. That was such a joyful memory. And and ever since then, Mark and I uh, have been friends. I'm so thankful for uh, Mark. And he's, he's a real, he's a godly man and a, a man of prayer. And as the Lord's placed him in this role as the executive director of our family of churches, one of the things that uh, that I want to encourage all of you about is that any questions at all that any of you ever have about Sovereign Grace Churches, um, Mark uh, Prater would personally be happy to talk to you about any questions that you ever have. I was uh, talking with him just the other day, John and I were, about this, and um, on a number of occasions we've had individuals who just, hey, I'd really like to talk uh, with, with Mark if possible, and Mark has been willing to uh, to do that, and John and I have been really blessed by that. And so want to just make you aware of that as an opportunity. Uh, Mark is a very uh, personally engaging man, and um, even though he's the executive director of our family of churches, he really cares about each member of Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, he's a very loving man, a very warm man to get to know, and I think you'll find that as you hear him preach God's Word. So I just wanted to throw that out to all of you and make you aware of that. John and I are also available to talk with you about anything at all that you have by way of question about the family of churches that we're a part of. But why don't we welcome Mark as he comes to preach God's word to us. Mark. Thanks, man. Uh, uh, Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It's good to be with you. On that E-team, we call them E-teams, short-term mission trip, uh, we did a uh, an evangelism drama called The Champion. And CB was the champion. Well, it's actually, Jesus is a champion, but CB kind of was representing all of that, and he just did a great job, and we've been wonderful friends um, since that time. That, that was probably 1997, 96 or 97, right around there. Probably 97, summer of 97, by the way. So we're getting old, CB and I, is what that, is what that means. Uh, just to echo what CB said, um, I'm sincere, he's sincere. If you ever have any questions about our denomination, they have my email and cell phone, and we can chat. I'm glad to do that. And um, I think personally engaging people can actually be very, very helpful. So feel the freedom to uh, to let them know, and they'll they'll give you the contact information. One other thing before we look at Romans 8. Thank you for your partnership with Sovereign Grace. Uh, you as a local church are making a, a wonderful contribution to our mission. Um, obviously, what you're doing in Croatia. Um, CB gave a report at a regional assembly of elders we had this week, and we saw all the videos you're going to see over the next few weeks, and they're so encouraging. 
But that wouldn't be happening. The gospel wouldn't be going forth in Croatia were it not for Christ Community Church. Your faith to send Mario and Jen, uh, your financial support, your prayers for them. So thank you. Um, we're uh, sharing that with you in Sovereign Grace, but it wouldn't happen apart for you. So you're just strengthening us in that way. And you should know that there's a family of churches. There's, I don't know, 70 other churches, whatever, however big we are, that are thanking God for you. So thank you. Also, just your gospel presence here in the Reading area. I was talking to Jill on the way in, and uh, she was just talking about how she loves this church because it's gospel-centered and saturated in the gospel. So thank you, CB and John, for, for preaching that way. But she said, we, we just take that out into the community. So we go to adoption support group, and we just start sharing the gospel, just talking about the gospel. And some people are like, we've never heard that before. There's an illustration of how you are a gospel community affecting your community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just thank God for you. It strengthens us as a family of churches. One other thing, any any um, any prayer ministry that says meet in the boiler room, I like that, man. So I was like, man, I may join this church. That's I like that. Meet in the boiler room for prayer. That's where it comes from. So. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your partnership with Sovereign Grace. CB and I chose this particular sermon from Romans chapter 8 because we all, as Christians, we need to be persuaded again and again that God is for us. And as CB mentioned, that's the title of my message this morning, God is for us. We're going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all? things. May God bless the preaching of His Word. People ask rhetorical questions not to get an answer, but to produce an effect, to make a point, to persuade. So comedians use rhetorical questions to try to get a laugh. Questions like, is there ever a day that mattresses are not on sale? Good question. Maybe a little funny. Or why is it that doctors call what they do practice? Yeah, it's real or is this practice? You may want to ask your doctor that, right? Parents use rhetorical questions to move their children to action. So how many times have, have you as a parent asked, how many times do I have to tell you? You're not interested in the quantitative answer, are you? You're interested in them taking action. Leaders use rhetorical questions to make a point and to persuade us. So Frederick Douglass, in his speech on July 5th, 1852, he asked this rhetorical, questions to this rhetorical question to persuade us that slavery is wrong. And this is what Frederick Douglass asked. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? It persuades, doesn't it? See, rhetorical questions are used to make a point, to produce an effect, to persuade. Verses 31 and 32 contain three questions. 
and the one right in the center, the third, the second question asked certainly is a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And this rhetorical question remains in our Bibles. It's added to the canon of Scripture because you and I need to be persuaded again and again that God is for us. But any rhetoric can be empty rhetoric if there is not truth that backs it up. And so Paul wants us to know that this rhetorical question here in verse 31 is not empty rhetoric because there is life-changing truth that backs it up, which is why he begins verse 31 with this question. What then shall we say to these things? We've got to stop and we've got to say, well, what are these things? If you just follow the flow and structure of this letter, most likely the things that Paul are talking about begin in chapter 5, verse 1, and they are the truths found from that point through verse 30 here in chapter 8. But for the sake of time, I'm simply going to draw from some truths just in Romans chapter 8 to show you that there is no empty rhetoric, that there's actually truth that backs up this rhetorical question in verse 31. And I'm going to use the language found there in verse 31. So what shall we say to the truth that's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? What shall we say to that truth? What shall we say to the truths that are found in verses 2 through 4, that in Christ we have been set free from the law of sin and death? Because Jesus, in his, through His death on the cross, on our behalf, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. What shall we say to that truth? What shall we say to the truths found in Romans chapter 8, verses 9-13, through 13, that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because at conversion the Spirit now dwells in us, and it is the Spirit who helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. What's that, what shall we say to that divine help? What shall we say to the truth found in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God? Oh, what shall we say to that truth? What shall we say to the truth found in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, that tell us that God foreknew us, that He predestined to save us, and therefore He called us and justified us, and we, we know that one day He will fully glorify us. Oh, what shall we say to these things, brothers and sisters? We shall say, God is for us. See, Paul begins verse 31 asking that particular question because he wants us to know there is no empty rhetoric found in the second rhetorical question in that verse because these things in this letter, these truths point to the God-exalting, Christ-centered gospel truths that back up the rhetorical question intended to persuade us that God is for us. And by the way, when he gets to the point, that point in the letter, this is not just act uh, this these questions are not asked with apathy or passivity he finishes up this part of the letter and he responds emotionally he responds passionately so this question is being asked 
If God is for us, brothers and sisters, who can be against us? See, this truth that God is for us remains in our Bibles because it's something that we need to be persuaded of again and again. That God is for us. Over the last three years, I've been leading what's called a a faith and work group, Bible and book study. It's open to any men and women in our church at Covenant Fellowship that work in different vocations. Uh, We gather on Friday morning at 7 a.m. and we read scripture together and we read through a book together. to help strengthen them as believers in their workplace and in their vocation. And recently, one of the men in that group, my friend John, he He emailed me and the entire group, and he was just saying, work has been really hard recently. It's been really difficult. He said, there are people taking credit for the work that I'm doing. There are people that are falsely accusing me at work. And he just said this in his email, I'm having trouble holding it all together. Would you pray for me? And I appreciated my friend's humility. Of course, we... We did pray for him. Beyond our prayers, what my friend needed at that moment, what he needs when he walks into work tomorrow morning, Monday morning, he also needs to be persuaded that as he goes into that difficult work situation, God is for him. We must remember that we live in a fallen world, don't we? Hostile to God and the ways of God and to the people of God. Our life in this fallen world is filled with with disappointments and trials and difficulty and suffering. And as a result of those things, we can be uncertain. We can be we can have doubts that God really is for us. So the question here in verse 31 It's in our Bibles because you and I need to be reminded. We need to be persuaded. We need to be assured again and again that our God is for us. So two ways we can be assured that God is for us. Two ways we can be assured God is for us. Here's the first. God is for us by being against our enemies. God is for us by being against our enemies. Let's read that. Second question there in verse 31 again. If God is for us, who can be against us? You probably noticed the question has two parts. It's the for part. God is for us. And it's the against part. Who then can be against us? It's framed in an if-then sort of way. So if or since God is for us, then who can be against us. The question assumes that as Christians we have things that are against us. We have enemies that oppose God and oppose the work of God in our lives. Therefore, this verse wants us to be persuaded that God is for us by being against our enemies, against those things that oppose us. So, what things are against us? What What enemies do we face in the Christian life? Well, again, we're just going to draw from Romans chapter 8, not the rest of the letter. We're just going to draw from Romans chapter 8 to sort of take a look and be reminded of these things that can be against us. 
So if you if you read the entirety of Romans chapter eight, you're going to notice that the first 13 verses talk about this this battle between the flesh and the spirit, the spirit that lives inside of us. So when he's using that term flesh, you know this because you're well taught here. It means the indwelling sin that remains. It means that we have this enemy within that opposes the work of God in our lives. And just having an awareness of that battle, so to speak, of that enemy makes us aware that we need God and we need him to be for us as we fight that enemy. I know I do. You know, in, in recent months, I had just noticed this pattern in my life in the way that I was relating to my wife, Jill. And I was impatient with her at times. And I believe my impatience was rooted in sinful judgment. And convicted by that, I confessed that, obviously, to Jill. I've done that several times. She forgave me and first and foremost confessed it to God. And through Christ, I have forgiveness. I've shared it with my fellowship group, the men that are in my fellowship group, because I want them to know about it. I, I need that a kind of accountability, and I need that kind of prayer. And I remember one morning where I'd been impatient with Jill the day before. I'm sitting at my desk and doing my devotions, and I'm confessing this yet again. And quite frankly, friends, I, I was discouraged. And in that moment, what I needed was not only the Spirit's conviction, the good, sweet conviction that shows me my sin against God and against Jill. What I also needed was the Spirit's work in my life to remind me that in my battle against impatience and sinful judgments, that my God is for me. See, beyond the work of the Spirit, we all need that work in our lives. Beyond the work of the Spirit of convicting us of sin when we are discouraged when we are weary in fighting sin we need the spirit to remind us of the truth found in verse 13 that it is by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the body in other words i don't fight this on my own do i you don't fight this on your own the indwelling sin that remains we have the spirit who works in our behalf god is for us Because he helps us to put to death our enemy, our indwelling sin, through the power and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, being a believer, you know that Satan is your enemy. Satan is real and he's going to oppose the work of God in your life. That's why we need to be reminded. We need to be persuaded of the truth found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because that's how Satan works. He wants to accuse you. He wants to condemn you. He wants to bring you down. And in that moment when you are in a spiritual battle so to speak. May the spirit work and remind you of this truth. That you don't battle Satan on your own. But that God is for you. Because he says for this one who's been washed in the blood of Christ, you can't touch him. You can't touch her. There's no condemnation here for this person. Maybe there are times when fear grips you. And fear becomes this almost functional enemy in your life. It's the diagnosis you receive that you didn't want to hear. It's when you lose your job and see no 
prospect for employment. It's when your child turns from Christ after raising them in a gospel home. It's when you're possibly being falsely accused at work. See, in those moments when fear seems to have sort of the upper hand, God wants you to know that He's for you and He's with you. He wants you to be persuaded by Romans chapter 8, verse 15, that says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, and by whom we can now cry out in the midst of our fear, Abba, Father, and receive His great help. See, God the Father is for you because He has chosen you to be a son or daughter and he will meet you in your fear and i got to this point in preparing the sermon this morning at my desk and the spirit stopped me i just think there are some here who are facing unemployment that's what i heard you're unemployed right now and you're fearful and i believe the lord's gonna he's gonna minister to you today he's gonna He wants to comfort you. He wants you to know that you're a son or a daughter and you can come in the midst of your fear and uncertainty and say, Abba, Father, help. And be persuaded to know that He is for you. Do you ever experience weakness at times? We experience weakness at different points in our lives. Weakness can almost seem like at times it's almost against me. Weakness can be a functional enemy as well at times. And that's why Paul and God in particular wants us to be persuaded by Romans chapter 8 verse 26 that says that that, that God the Spirit is for us by helping us in our weakness. So when we are weak, that's when the Spirit especially works and when He is helpful to us. Jill and I, as I mentioned, CB and I are getting older. Jill and I are getting older as well. And as you get older, you know, you just you're more aware of your weakness. Um, We start conversations we don't finish because we forgot what we were going to say. We lose things and can't find them and don't know what happened to them. And it's part of getting old. Recently, Jill was doing the laundry in our home, and all of the socks that went into the washer and dryer didn't come out of the washer and dryer. You had lost socks before, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so was, one of my socks was was missing. And so Jill and I were looking all over the house for this lost sock. We can't find this sock. And uh, it, probably about a week or so go by. You can't find the sock. All right, maybe it's just gone forever. About a week or so goes by, and I'm sitting at my desk doing my devotions early one morning. And as I'm reading Scripture, I'm not, uh, suddenly I, I hear from the Lord, Mark, your sock is in the family room behind the love seat. So, of course, I doubted that I'm hearing God. I'm like, what's the matter with me? Do I, do I miss my sock that much, right? And so I kind of went back to my, my reading of Scripture, and I, I heard again, Mark, your sock is behind the love seat in the family room. So I thought, okay, that's the second time i got to get up. So I, I'm curious now. So I walk into the family room, I pull back the love seat, and there is my sock. So I pick up my sock and I walk upstairs and I said, Jill, I found my sock. And she said, where was it? I said, it was behind the love seat in the family room. She said, 
How did you know it was there? I said, God told me. <laughs> we laughed. And if you're here for the first time, you might think, that is a goofy story. Right? That's a weird story. And I get that. But don't miss the point. The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. And in our weakness, His power is made perfect. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Some of you are walking through suffering right now. Trials of various kinds that you would have never expected. And we go through trials and we go through suffering and we go through difficulties. We can begin to question at times, where is God and is He for me? And when those periods of suffering and difficulty and trials, when those are prolonged, I think we're even more prone to wonder, is God for me? That's why we need to be persuaded by the truth here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God is for us because He uses all things. Not just the good things, the difficult things. The suffering uses all things for our good. We need, we need to be reassured that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when Christ returns, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, he will say, I'm making all things new. And on that day, there will be no more suffering. See, for everything that is against us, these truths, these things in Romans 8 tell us that God is for us by being against our enemies. It's why he writes later in the chapter, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, victorious Christian living is not free from the battle against indwelling sin. Victorious Christian living is not free from, from suffering and disappointment and difficulties in this life. Victorious Christian living is not free from weakness, whether it be physical or mental or, or emotional weakness. Victorious Christian living is not 24-7 health, wealth uh, that denies the realities of living in a fallen world. Rather, victorious Christian living acknowledges the realities of living in a fallen world and steps into them knowing that God is with us and that God is for us. So this rhetorical question is intended to persuade you that there is no one, that there is no circumstance, that there is no thing that can stand in the way that the one for whom God is for. And if you're in Christ, you sit here as one with assurance that he is for you. See, God is for you by being against your enemy. Second way we can be assured that God is for us. Number two, God is for us by giving us all things. Verse 32, let's read that again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. It's, at, it's, as if, it's as if these things in verse 31 are not enough to persuade us that God is for us. 
he now points to the ultimate thing that can persuade us that God is for us. How can we be certain? How can we be convinced? How can we be assured that God is for us? Because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, the original audience that received this letter, and maybe many of you this morning, when you read verse 32, they would have, they would have thought of that story in Genesis chapter 22 where God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and to offer him, meaning to kill him as a sacrifice to God. As you know, Abraham obeyed. And with knife in hand, ready to kill his son Isaac, God intervened. And Isaac's life was spared. But that would not be so for God's only son, Jesus Christ. God the Father did not intervene. Jesus was not spared the cross. Rather, Scripture tells us that God gave Him up says here in verse 32 for us all and that that use of the word gave there that you see there in verse 32 tells us this was God's initiative this was God's doing this was God's plan this was God's work to send his son to the cross as Isaiah 53 verse 10 says it is the will of the Lord to crush him crush Jesus. We really have to stop here and ask, why? If he intervened with Isaac, why wouldn't he intervene with Jesus, his only son? Why did God not spare his own son of the cross? And actually, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 answers the question in this way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God the Father gave up His Son as a sacrifice for us all. To pay for, to atone for the iniquity of us all. That's persuasive. Now, we've got to make sure that we understand verse 32 correctly. We, we, we might not understand it in the way that God intends. We see that it is God the Father who took the initiative to give up His only Son, Jesus Christ, who gave up God the Son. But we must remember that it was the Son, Jesus Christ, who not reluctantly did what His Father wanted, but voluntarily said, I will obey and I will go to the cross. It's recorded this way in Luke as one proof source. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up. We see in here in verse 32, he was given up. And Jesus knew the days had come clear now where he was to be taken up. He set his face. To go to Jerusalem. Resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. God the Father 
gave up his son. And when Jesus knew it was time for him to be taken up, Jesus resolutely went to Jerusalem to die in our place. John Stott captures it this way. There was no unwillingness in either the father or the son. On the contrary, their wills coincided in the perfect self-sacrifice of love. So the ultimate way that we can be certain that God is for us is found in that perfect self-sacrifice of love by the Father and the Son seen in His sacrifice at the cross. So when we are uncertain in the midst of trials and difficulties and questions that God is for us, we need to stop And we really do need to look at Calvary and remember that God the Father, your Father who adopted you, did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for you. And the Son voluntarily went to the cross on your behalf. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ is the most persuasive truth the world will ever know that convinces us, that persuades us that God is for us. And if God did that, if He gave up His Son for us all, then how will He not? How could He not then give us all things? As you're noticing, Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Right? In verse 32. If I've done this for you in the giving of my Son, how then could I not give you all things? You might be thinking, well, Mark, there there are things... That God hasn't given me yet. There are things I've been praying for and asking God for. And He hasn't given to me yet. I need a job. He hasn't given me a job yet. I've prayed that that God would work and reconcile a broken relationship in my extended family. And that relationship, it remains broken. I've asked God to save my wandering son. And He hasn't answered that prayer yet. And He is still lost. We all have we all have unmet needs. We all have unanswered prayers, which and those moments can make us uncertain that God is for us, right? That's why it's important to understand all things, this all things language in verse thirty two. It must be understood in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. So in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, God has met our greatest need. That being saved from the wrath that we obviously deserve through our many sins. And that truth has great implications for our life in this life and for the life that we will enjoy when Jesus returns. Through faith in Christ and through His finished work on the cross on our behalf, we can be certain, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that there is a glory, that there is an eternal life that is going to be revealed to us one day. At the end of singing, what did we pray? Come, Lord Jesus. We, we believe that, right? We, along with all of creation, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, we, we groan to be set free from the bondage of this fallen world and to obtain our full freedom of the glory that we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. You feel that living in a fallen world, don't you? So, because of the cross, We can wait eagerly and with confidence for the redemption of our bodies when we will enjoy our new heavenly bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. 
Therefore, all things means that we won't have all that we want in this life. It means that Jesus will give us all that we need to live for Christ in this life and to prepare us to live with Christ forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what all things means. All things is is not all that we need in this life or want in this life, but it is all things that will give us get us safely to our eternal home. That's what that verse means. Let me let me just say it another way and form it into a rhetorical question. If God initiated your salvation, why would he not give you all that you need to enjoy the consummation of that salvation on the day that Jesus returns. Last year, I had one of my most privileged moments in ministry. I've been in ministry almost 22 years now, and, and it was one of those highlights for me where I was, I was asked to do the funeral of the oldest member of Covenant Fellowship Church. Mary Spar was 93 years old when she went home to be with the Lord. And we talked. She, she said to me, she would point her finger at me and say, you better be there and do my funeral. I, I was scared. Of course I was going to. I actually changed a trip to be there just so I could do her funeral. Most Sunday mornings I'd walk in, um, and when I saw Mary, I greeted her. I would hug her. and Mary, how you doing? And her typical response most Sundays was it was this. I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't know what the Lord is waiting on, but I am ready to go home. That was her typical response. See, Mary was ready because she believed that God had given his only son for her. And that on that day when she went to be with the Lord, she knew on that day through her faith in Christ that when she stood before the judgment seat of God, that Jesus was going to be right there and His atoning blood would be for her. That's why she was ready. That's why she was eager. If, if you talked to Mary, she would have said this, I didn't have all that I wanted in this life. But I know that God gave me all that I needed to grow in Christ and to live for Christ in this life, which only prepared me to live with Jesus forevermore. She got the all things. She understood it right here in verse 32. So brothers and sisters, God may not give us all that we want. Maybe we should even drop the may, right? God will not give us all that we want in this life. But we can be assured of this from this verse. He will give us all that we need to live for Christ and to grow in Christ in this life so that on that day we are prepared like Mary to live with Christ now and forevermore. John Stott says, in the giving of His Son, He gave everything. The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. Our God has been generous to us in the giving of His Son. And that alone tells us that He will give us, He will be generous in giving all that we need in this life. So we'll be ready to live with Him in that life. God is for us by giving us all things. So let me close with this. 
that the, the rhetorical question here in the middle of verse 31 is in our Bibles because it's intended to persuade us again and again that God is for us. So let me ask you, are you persuaded? And before you get too far into your day or into your week, stop. Put down your device. Try to find a quiet place, which is hard with young kids. But ask yourself this question. Am I persuaded? Am I persuaded that God is really for me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is a living, holy word. These two verses are your words. And they have spoken to us today. These truths found in Romans 8, they're your words. And they have assured us today. That you are for us. That's an amazing thing. So we thank you for the work of the Spirit that brought these truths to life, not only in our understanding, but in our hearts. And I want to pray, Lord, for those here that are unemployed and maybe living in fear. That was from you. Would you draw near to them? Would you fill, fill them with your Spirit? Would you remind them that they have not received the Spirit to fall back into fear? But the Holy Spirit lives in them. And as assurance that you've adopted them. That they are a son or a daughter. And so I pray, Father, draw near to your son and draw near to your daughter. And comfort them. And love them. And pour out your grace upon them. Assure them that you are for them. We pray that you would provide employment for them, Lord quickly act in amazing ways that, that, that tell each of these people, God worked on my behalf to get me this job. Help them in that way. Lord, for all of us, we, we pray that it, whatever challenges we face this week, may truth help us in those moments and remind us and reassure us that you are for us so that we walk through those challenges in a way that our lives bring you much glory. We pray this all. In Jesus' name, amen. If I can have the worship and return, we're going to close some worship in just a moment here. Um, I love the question at the end. Thanks, Mark, for are we persuaded? Are we persuaded? I think, I think the enemy is really going to want to attack all of us at this point. If he can convince us in our own minds that God's not for us, it really opens us up to a sea of temptations and discouragements. And so each one of us, as we uh, begin to prepare our hearts to close in worship, let's just have a moment of just reflection as we prepare our hearts to sing. Say to the Lord, if you're persuaded from the word, tell him, Lord, I'm persuaded. I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm persuaded, though, from your word. My feelings might be telling me one thing, but your word's telling me another. And I'm going to side right now with the word. So let's, let's reflect and let's tell the Lord that we're persuaded.
let us all stand and let us sing. Father, we thank you for not sparing your own son. Jesus, we thank you for resolutely setting your face toward Jerusalem to go to the cross, to die on the cross for our sins. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for testifying with our spirit that we are the children of God, convincing us that you are for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister assurance, fresh assurance of salvation, fresh assurance, fresh persuasion that you are indeed for each of my brothers and sisters in the room this morning. Satan goes hard at work all week long trying to tear that down. And I pray, Holy Spirit, reinforce and strengthen persuade and let it be solid in the souls of all of my dear brothers and sisters and in my very soul as well. We need you. And we thank you for the way you've done that this morning to us. Through the preaching of the word we received here. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we thank God for Mark again and the blessing of that word to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, brothers and sisters. Go forth in peace and assurance and be persuaded of that truth this morning. God bless you and have a wonderful day.